0: GI Connect is an initiative of Core to Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the GI Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core to Ed website. So, hello and welcome to this podcast covering lower GI highlights from ESMO 2022. I'm Dr. Jenny Seligman and I'm a GI medical oncologist and I'm based in the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. And today I'm delighted to be joined on this GI Connect podcast by Dominic Modest. Dominic, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hello everyone, my name is Dominic Modest. I'm a medical oncologist uh, working at the Charité in Berlin Just like Jenny, I'm specialised in treatment of colorectal cancers and I'm happy to join.
0: Great. So today we are going to review some of the key colorectal cancer abstracts from this year's ESMO meeting. And I think, Dominic, I think it's pretty fair to say that it was a really good congress for colorectal cancers. Not all congresses are.
1: It was, truly.
0: <laughs> it was It was truly a great congress for colorectal cancer. So the main topics that we're going to cover today. So we're going to cover the NICHE2 trial and give you some context to the new saying, the Shalabi plot. We're also going to look at an interesting abstract using HIPEC and locally advanced colon cancers and also look at Fresco 2 and the emerging story in KRAS-12C mutations. So will I start with the NICHE 2 data, Dominic?
1: Please, go ahead.
0: So the NICHE 2 trial was run in the NKI in the Netherlands, and this was building upon the NICHE 1 trial. So the whole purpose of this route of investigation was to look at the role of neoadjuvant immunotherapy in patients with locally advanced deficient mismatch repair or MSI high colon cancer. Not rectal cancer, so colon cancer. And so the Niche 1 trial really showed some early encouraging data, not just with safety, but also efficacy. So the Niche 2 trial built upon that to see whether the the signal that had been seen in Niche 1, which was just in 30 DMMR patients, actually could be seen in a larger population. So the trial was now over 100 patients, and the co-primary endpoints were safety and feasibility, and three-year disease-free survival. And so what was presented in the presidential symposium was safety and feasibility, and the secondary endpoint of pathological response. So number one, in terms of safety and feasibility, I think we could all be quite convinced by that. The, The treatment was very well tolerated, and there was Less than 5% grade three events, which led to almost the vast majority of patients having surgery as planned on time within a six week window. So that was very encouraging. I think the thing that really caught everybody's attention was the waterfall plot on response. I mean, this was something that we haven't seen in colon cancer before. So Miriam Shalabi reported a major pathological response rate of over two thirds of patients. And I'm gonna use the figure here of 67% of a PCR, which is incredible. Would you not agree, Dominic? I mean, the the whole place just burst into a round of applause. It was phenomenal.
1: Really, yeah. Never experienced something like that in colorectal cancer. I mean, we were used to these sceneries in melanoma or other breakthrough immunologic indications, uh, but not in colon uh, cancer. So it was really great to see this. And also that, the patients who did not have a PCR, nearly all of them still had a ma- major pathological response. And I think the, the key thing about it was only three weeks of treatment. If we just imagine the time from start of this study until timely surgery was considerably short. I think during COVID, we had these time intervals maybe in the routine care without having trial therapy. And they managed to integrate that into the short-term interval. So basically, it's it's really, really tough to to find uh, any aspects of concern and to discuss on that (laughs) trial, which is really a hard job for us in this podcast. I may put up one. Johnny, you've been heavily involved into the FOXTOR trial and I think we've been discussing uh, the concept or the emerging concept of having adjuvant therapy in colon cancer, just like in rectal cancers uh, over the last years. And I think one of the major issues and, and also aspects that were criticized heavily from surgical and also radiological societies was that pre-staging uh, is really hard in colon cancer. It, it's not an MRI of the pelvic region. It's hard to stage these. And I remember that The point of concern was especially MSI tumours. So having that in mind, how do you interpret the patient selection? Have they all had a tumour that was truly T4? Can we control on that? Was everybody in need uh, of immunotherapy despite this unprecedented efficacy?
0: Yeah, I think that's some of the key questions that would come out of that. So in terms of the radiological staging, you're right. It seems to be more the nodal disease where the problem is in in MSI high tumours, so we know that. It's almost like tossing a coin in terms of calling nodes, so I'm not sure how confident you would be in their baseline radiological assessments, particularly with the N2 stage. I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that. And I think that there's a lot of work to be done in radiological staging in colon cancer, but I don't think that that would stop delivery.
1: The whole story.
0: No, I think this this is going to emerge alongside the development of this whole new field, which is neoadjuvant colon cancer. And I think everyone's starting to understand that this is a field in colon cancer that we're now going to start moving to. And we need to improve the radiological staging as we're going, rather than stopping everything in its tracks because of the radiological staging. This can be done in parallel. Of course, Dominic, you need to then balance the risk of the treatment that you're giving versus the risk of uncertainty. And please just remember our position with adjuvant chemotherapy. We've been giving adjuvant chemotherapy for how many years to a lot of patients that didn't require it? And here we've seen beautifully that this treatment is safe. So I think in terms, this is a conversation to have with the patient, but absolutely no way should that be a barrier into the progression of this extremely exciting field. So question back to you, Dominic. What would stop this being, based upon the data that we have at the moment, would you want to see disease-free survival? I mean, what do we tell our patients in clinic? Where are we going next?
1: Basically, I was just trying to give you a hard time in terms of... (laughs) Perspectives. I think we we pretty much agree. I think the DFS uh, will be a challenge because, as was reported orally, there hasn't been a recorded relapse yet. So um, I think they're on a good way to have a quite convincing three-year DFS rate. <laughs> so basically, I, I'm not sure whether this will change. Um, and the median follow-up, which was clearly better than the data that we had in rectal cancers at ASCO with six months of dostalimab was uh, longer than a year. In contrast to 6.8 months uh, with Dostalimab. I think the questions are are quite clear how much immunotherapy is needed for maybe those that have not reached a PCR. And the key question, of course, somehow emerging is, is that a curative therapy in itself? We cannot answer that now, I think, and we need the long-term follow-up data as they are now and see whether there is distant relapse. Um, I think we are pretty much confident maybe with the rectal cancer trial to have a local control assessment and maybe extrapolate that to a certain extent to the colon when we find it increasingly difficult to monitor. So we're we're getting in the uncertainties here. You you see it
0: as uncertainty, I see it as opportunity. Um, I I think this is, I, I mean, I think number one, we can't completely extrapolate rectal to colon. I think you're right. I think we could be looking at cure in some patients, but we need to be confident that we can have a monitoring of response in the way that it's taken 20 years to get to organ preservation protocols in rectal cancer. There are none in colon cancer. Colonoscopy, of course, is going to be more difficult. Some of the flexures, you're just not going to be able to get good pictures. So yes, absolutely. But I think the next Cure absolutely, but we need to we need to find ways that feel safe and good ways to monitor the patients and monitor response. So I think this is again just opening a whole new era for personalized medicine and colon cancer, which is super exciting.
1: Agreeing on that, I will try to to put a bit of context to uh, emerging or maybe old stories, which have a certain overlap with a niche trial. Uh, so I, I'll take a hard turn and introduce the t four trial that we've also seen uh, at ESMO. This was an oral presentation, and it comes up with a quite somehow intuitive, but maybe difficult question. The question of the HIPEC T4 trial was in CT4 patients, so clinically T4 patients with colon carcinoma, it was randomized to do upfront surgery and adjuvant systemic therapy. Versus surgery, plus a high pack with martimicine C, 30 milligrams per square meter, over 60 minutes. Um, To the community, these details are absolutely important, and this is why we mentioned them. Followed also by adjuvant uh, systemic chemotherapy. The primary endpoint of the trial was local relapse or local control, which was clearly demonstrated, to the surprise of many colleagues, I think we can uh, say that, Uh, after many, many negative trials uh, of HIPEC uh, that were tested in, in colorectal cancer of any kind of stage and treatment situation. We also had DFS and OS, and I think it's fair to say that the initial local effect did not translate into DFS, or maybe also with a small trend, and absolutely not into overall survival. So basically, from my point of view, uh, we have one of the most convincing demonstration that HIPEC does something. So there is a local effect, at least on the peritoneal relapse rate. However, this is also natural therapy. And I think, although this is coming a bit out of the corner, I think we have to put that trial into perspective with the just discussed niche 2 data. Or what's your perspective, Jenny?
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I think for these really locally advanced tumours, I mean, I personally would have given them upfront systemic treatment in that situation, and particularly now, considering a lot of those tumours, as you said, were dMMR or MSI high, going straight to surgery with high PEC is is clearly not going to be the best approach, but. Complete kudos to the investigators. These trials are very hard to run. And when the trial was set up, certainly upfront systemic treatment would not have been in their minds. But Dominic, how relevant is local control? I mean, when you think about all of the steps you need to go through to have a approved treatment in uh, early colon cancer, should this change anyone's practice? Should we be doing this for any patients? Were there any groups that benefited more than others, do you think?
1: So... From a today's perspective, the answer, at least my answer, is clearly no. I think we miss a lot of data of that trial that we should urgently get. Most of it is uh, DMR or PMR. We have not seen the data, so the key question, which proportion would have been eligible for a concept uh, like investigated uh, in NICHE 2. We do not have any other molecular pathology uh, except for mucinous and, and signet ring uh, cell carcinoma, which I find difficult to understand why these were evaluated. Uh, and MSI, MSS was not. So I think many details of that trial are still unclear and it shouldn't change a clinical practice, but it might change to a certain extent our perspective on high-pack, because honestly spoken, when I was coming into ASMO, I, I did not expect this trial to show anything at all. After the experience we had with the Prodice trial in, in metastatic colorectal cancer and cytoreductive surgery, which was super negative. There was not even a small signal of anything. So basically, it does not change my clinical practice, but I think it changes my perspective on HIPEC and maybe if we are able to understand who are the like absolute 10 to 12 percent patients that did not relapse in the peritoneum this may open up opportunities for the future to better select these patients and I think we will clearly and quickly agree that this will be an MSS population or needs to be an MSS population because all the other patients are also...
0: I think the other question we need to ask is, can we be looking at other intraperitoneal therapies? So in ovarian cancer, they do other different things. You know, there's more than, rather than just one dose of HIPEC, there's other methods of delivering intraperitoneal chemotherapy. Maybe if we're not seeing spectacular results with HIPEC, maybe we should be continuing to think about local treatments, but maybe thinking about alternative approaches.
1: Okay, so we agree this does not change clinical practice, but Jenny, is there another trial that may change clinical perspective?
0: Well, I suppose the data that was most likely, I suppose, to routinely impact patient care would be the FRESCO2 trial. So as you know, regorafenib is the only TKI which is approved in metastatic colorectal cancer. So the FRESCO trial was looking at fruquintinib, which is a oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor of VEGF receptors 1, 2 and 3. And Fresco 2 follows on from Fresco 1, which had been run in China, which was testing fruquitinib in heavily pretreated patients versus placebo. But the need for another trial was felt that the standard of care in China in terms of a pretreated patient was different from international practice. So hence the Fresco 2 trial took place. So again, patients were heavily pretreated and had to have had either regorafenib or TAS-102. And patients were randomised between frequentinib plus best supportive care versus placebo plus best supportive care, given the stage of the patient journey at that point. So overall survival was the primary endpoint and there was, as you can see, there was a significant improvement in overall survival, which was modest but arguably clinically significant within this population. The data quite similar to um, what we had seen in other agents in this disease setting. There was a significant improvement of progression free survival as well of around two months. The safety profile, I thought, looked Reasonable. The main grade three toxicities were hand foot syndrome and hypertension. Less hand foot, arguably, than regorafenib. So I think it was generally felt to be well tolerated. So Dominic, what were your views? Does this now represent a, a new standard of care?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, at least a new potential standard of care. I think what I found a bit amazing uh, in cross tile comparison is that the disease control rates at least from my point of view, for the first time, was higher than 50% in that situation. We've never seen this with TAS-102, Triflipur, Tibirazil, however you call it, and Regorafenib. They never made it across this kind of landmark. So this was clearly uh, better uh, with Fulquintinib. This is, I think, one aspect. The other aspect was uh, the absolute gain in overall survival was, I think, a, a lucky measurement. So the hazard ratio and the gain and benefit, I think, is pretty much comparable to what we've seen with trifluidin-tipiracil. So that's basically, I would say, the same uh, class of effects on the overall survival. With the toxicity, I think you've summed up nicely. However, it's a TKI. It's not so far away in terms of how the molecular is built from regorafenib. And I think we will figure out when we treat patients regularly on that drug, I expect a bit more side effects as we see with the trifluidine uh, and maybe a bit less uh, as with Rigorafenib. It might be somewhere in between these two drugs. And um, yeah, I think that's all said. Um, it's a new drug on the horizon. That's good news. Whether the gain.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just one of those things, as we know, that's diminishing returns with each line of treatment. And so the number of patients that make it then. To the position, if it moves forward in the patients who have had to have been treated with either TAS one or two or regorafenib, if it's in the, that that post progression population, I suppose the concern is there's fewer patients that are actually going to make it to that treatment line. So it'll be interesting to see where it's positioned eventually.
1: Yeah, agree. I think if it needs now to further development, I think uh, had to have trials in the third line setting are. Uh, what is uh, asked for um, in the fifth line setting or sixth line setting as it was uh, developed now, because that was the patient population. Um, I think the overall benefit for the whole population, um, um, I think we easily agree on this, is uh, considerably small. However, I think in that that setting, going to third line, second line, and also pretreated patient, I think there's quite a lot of development. Also at ESMO. And I think it might get into certain clashes with another uh, kind of strategy that was emerging and uh, I'd like to introduce at this point, which is the KRAS G12C mutant metastatic colorectal cancer story. We sum up two abstracts, which are basically exploring the same strategy, which is a combined inhibition of the EGFR receptor with either cetuximab or panitumumab in combination with the G12C inhibitor, which was in the one trial, Adragazip. And in the other one, Sotorazib, so we have two active combinations. Both were tested in pretreated patients, heavily pretreated patients as well. And I think the overall message was pretty simple, at least from my point of view. These combinations do work. We have a very good disease control rate, which is the vast majority of patients, above 90% in one cohort. And also objective response rate, which is beyond 30%. At least I think we can estimate from these small numbers might be even about 40% in the end. I think we have to see more patients and and larger cohort to really estimate where we are. However, I think the region of objective response rate exceeds everything that we have seen as last line options. So I think there will be further development. And I think the key question, and and Jenny, you may comment on this, how to proceed with these combinations uh, in the future. Where is the story leading us
0: Sure, I mean I, I think the one thing to point out is this does represent a small population of the metastatic colorectal cancer population. Um excuse me if I'm wrong off the top of my head, about two percent?
1: I think three to four. Be a bit optimistic.
0: You're a bit <laughs> more optimistic. Okay. So even by that, the very nature of the rare alteration does impact on the type of study design and the the level of evidence that's going to be needed. I mean, it's been really nice following the story, which reminds you back to the the BRAF story of the evolution of how it went and now where we have an approved drug. Interestingly, in that setting, when we think back to the Beacon study where things have gone, so we, we started in the second, third line and now the interest is moving into the first line in combination with chemotherapy. I'm very excited about seeing those patients being treated in the first line. I think you should be giving patients your most effective treatment up front. I think we've got very good evidence that shows that depth of response to your first line treatment has impacts all the way through. However, I suspect what we're going to end up with is a larger study, again, in patients who have had at least one or two lines of therapy. And it's going to really need an international effort to identify these patients and get them enrolled. And, of course, ask what the, the best control arm is for, for this group as well.
1: Yeah. So basically a lot of work to do. I think, as you've pointed out, I think one of the major takeaways that we have is that the combined inhibition of a MAP kinase alteration together with the EGFR receptor is needed. And I would be surprised if the story would change if we get other KROS-specific inhibitors like G12D, which are on the horizon. So I think for the overall strategy, how to combine drugs to find synergies, uh, block escape mechanisms, these two abstracts were really helping us. Considering further development, I think we have to acknowledge, and this is true for the Beacon as well as the now presented abstracts in G12C, the efficacy of these targeted combinations is superb in terms of short term we have super response rates and uh, in the vast majority of patients however durations of response are limited there's evolution in the tumors ongoing and therefore i think uh, the effort will not only be internationally in terms of how many centers that we need to recruit these patients i also think that combinations maybe with classical chemotherapy if you move to the first line are needed to achieve the mentioned depth of response, or do you have another perspective?
0: I completely agree with that. And I think, unfortunately, it sounds very simple. But I think even now, you know, Scott Copetz presented more data from Beacon, again, just demonstrating the complexity with the targeted treatment. So it's not just as simple as targeting this pathway and targeting that pathway. And I think we'd be naive to go into future development thinking it's going to be quite as simple as that. So exciting times. So I think we'll sum up there. I hope you agree that this has been a really exciting time for colorectal cancer. It's been a really good conference. Thank you, Dominic, for sharing your perspectives. And I hope everyone has enjoyed this GI Connect podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Jenny. It was a pleasure.
0: This GI Connect podcast was brought to you by core to ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.